0: The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit RestorationSouthside.org. the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? The crowd had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead. Uh, the, crowd, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world is gone after him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you are in kindergarten through fifth grade and you would like to go to Children's Church, please join our volunteers by the Kids zone sign. If it's your child's first time in Children's Church, please go with them so we can get them checked in.
1: Thank you, Jacob. Well, good morning. My name is Ben and I'm on staff here at Restoration and we're glad you're here with us on this Palm Sunday. Uh, we're kicking off Holy Week, which means uh, Palm Sunday is this Sunday. We have a Good Friday service uh, coming up on Friday at 6 p.m. in this room. And then uh, next Sunday is Easter Sunday. Services at 9 and, and 1045. And after each one, we'll have uh, an Easter egg hunt uh, for little ones, or if you are a big one and want to uh, join in. You'll be greeted by a donut on Easter, and you're, you'll leave with a bag full of candy. So we are um, unashamedly a sugar church, uh, but we are glad you're here, and we would invite you next week to join us, too. As we look at Palm Sunday and, again, kick off Holy Week, uh, we're looking at the Gospel of John. John's uh, The the Gospels are the beginning of the New Testament, and John's one of those uh, Gospels, and it attests to the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the ascension and resurrection of Jesus. And we're looking at John's account of this. And in John's account, he doesn't just talk about the triumphal entry, which is Jesus' entry on a Sunday morning with a donkey and palm branches like we had the kids uh, walk around with. It's also uh, right after one of Jesus' most powerful miracles and signs, the raising of Lazarus. Mark mentioned it. And so for us, it's important for us to look at it because uh, it foreshadows his own resurrection. It has notes and tones and tension that he himself will lean into and fulfill. And like all Scripture It's important for us to engage it, to to see the details of it, to see the tiny little notes of it, because um, we believe here that uh, your story finds its meaning and resolve, healing and joy in the story of Scripture. And so when we engage the story of the Bible and stories of the Bible, actually uh, the Holy Spirit will speak to you and will move in you. And so, uh, because of that, uh, we'll look at three things this morning we'll look at the movement. Uh, the malice and the majesty. The movement, the uh, malice, and the majesty. Because together we're beginning Holy Week. And Jesus is journeying toward the cross. And for us, actually, we're journeying with him. And we all are hoping that there's resurrection on the other side of it, because that's what he offers. And so let's pray as we study God's word together. Lord, uh, we sing out with hope, and we sing out, Lord, with uh, even um, doubt. That it, it's better this way. A story you write; it's it's better because even in the hard, in the end, you are a God who's not just victorious, but you're a God who's so for your people and with your people. And so this very day with the stories that enter this room, find their resolve, find their joy, find their meaning and purpose in your grand story. That whatever we're walking through this morning, that we would look at it and say, I don't get it, Lord. And the fog is thick, the questions are many and weighty, and yet it's better this way. Lord, help our unbelief, even as we say we believe. And Lord, may we walk out of the tomb because you have walked out. May we follow you. We pray in your name, King Jesus. Amen. So, again, we're going to zoom out for a second. We're not going to talk about this parade of the palm branches, but what comes right before it. It's the healing of Lazarus. And what we see is the movement, the movement of Jesus in the healing of Lazarus in John 11. Uh, Lazarus is sick and he's on his deathbed and his family is calling to Jesus and saying, hey, Jesus, your buddy Lazarus, he's sick and very near death. Would you come? Come to your friend and Jesus doesn't come. He's actually slow to come, intentionally slow to come. And as he's slow to get to his friend Lazarus, his friend Lazarus dies. And Jesus shows up uh, late and pretty much to awake. to to this mourning, grieving family, and two sisters of Lazarus come out to Jesus. And first there's Martha. And Martha comes out to Jesus and says, "Um, Jesus, if you would have been here, he would not have died. And they begin this conversation, this dialogue, and in it, she says, I know there's going to be resurrection in the last day. I know that. But if you would have been here, he would not have died. And that's when Jesus tells her the truth. Comfort through truth. And he says, I am the resurrection. Comfort through truth. The next sister comes out, Mary, and Mary says the exact same thing. If you would have been here, he would not have died. And she begins to weep at his feet. Which then ensues the shortest verse of the Bible, Jesus wept. Comfort through tears. And to these two sisters, what we see is the ministry that Jesus is both wholeheartedly committed to. Truth and tears. That's what Tim Keller says. He's equally committed to truth and tears. That's your Jesus. And all of those things are because he's moved. He's moved. What does that mean? In verse 33, it says this. It says, When Jesus saw her Martha weeping and the Jews who had also come along with her also weeping he was deeply moved and spirit and troubled where have you laid him he asked come and see lord they replied and Jesus wept then the jews said see how he loved him but some of them said could he could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying Jesus, once more, deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Deeply moved. Happens twice in this passage, deeply moved. And, and it doesn't attest to the fact that Jesus is a feeler. If you're a feeler, you're probably thinking of a kindred spirit in Jesus. But it's not because he's a feeler, it actually has deeper tones. It's actually kind of a more, it's a it's, it's polished word in its translation, deeply moved. Because what it means is he's indignant. Jesus is angry. He's he says to quake with rage. He, it's actually like a like a bull or a lion snorting or roaring. That when he sees evil present in his people, what happens to Jesus? He's moved. He's indignant. In verse thirty three, he was deeply moved at the sight of Mary grieving, and what does he do? He cries. He weeps over death. And in verse 38, it says, again, being deeply moved at the sight of his friend's tomb, what does he do? He says, roll the stone away. They say, Jesus, he's been dead for four days. Decay has set in. He's he's done for. He's he's dead. He says, do it. The stone's rolled away, and he calls out to his friend, Lazarus, come out. And with a word, life occurs where there once was death. His friend comes out alive, and he's bound with grave clothes, and he says, unbind him. Unbind him. And it's important to note that, that he's not just moved to tears, though he is moved to tears. He's not just a move to action, though he is moved to action. Both those things Jesus sees in Martha and in Mary, and in his movement, what he's going to do is solve the thing that both those movements are caused by. For the w- grieving weeper and for the one who longs for truthful resolve, he's going to fix the source, death. He's going to go to Lazarus's tomb and incite and speak life where there was death so that there's going to be freedom. And here's what I mean. He calls Lazarus to come out, and Lazarus still has his grave clothes on. He says, unbind him. In a word, the ministry and the life and the action and the mode of operations of Jesus is this. He moves. He sees you as his, and he's moved by it to the point in which he will unbind the things you are bound by. So, if he's moved, is he moved by your suffering that you're bound by? If that kind of Jesus is moved, is he moved uh, by the, the embattled reality that you're you're bound by? By the questions you're bound by? Is he moved by the loss you're bound by, the depression you're down, bound by? Is he moved by you and what binds you? To this very passage, one pastor. Uh, said this about John 11. It says the whole time Jesus knew how it would go down. And yet, one of the most remarkable things that always gets me is that knowing exactly what he is about to do, Jesus does what? He weeps. Do you see that a strong confidence at the end of the story does not undo or justify the absence of grief in the middle of the story? A mature faith adds its tears to the sadness in our world. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, all the while not losing confidence at how that sadness will eventually be overcome in him. So if you're doubting the love of Jesus and and you try to work it out through your circumstances, no, you never read your circumstances and then read the love of Jesus. You read the love of Jesus toward your circumstances if you're doubting his love for you, if you're struggling with his authority in the midst of sadness and confusion, let the cross speak to you again. Look there so that you may say confidently, see how he loves me. This is the one given for me. To John 11, that pastor said these words four weeks ago about how Jesus wept over his friend's death. And the pastor who preached that four weeks ago, six days ago, wept because his daughter was taken from him. Is Jesus moved by that? Is Jesus indifferent? Is Jesus uh, unable? Is he limited? Is Jesus moved by the suffering that is oh so very deep in your world, in my world, in our world. Is Jesus moved? And what I would offer you this morning is that the only hope we have is that Jesus is unequivocally moved to tears because he's unequivocally committed to wiping away the thing that induces your tears. And here's how I know that. Because in Revelation 21, the last book of the Bible, when human history is culminated and reaches its climax and actually forever begins, what happens is Satan is bound, just like Lazarus was bound and done away with. The evil things are are, are the past and the sad things have come untrue. And what happens is actually heaven in, in Revelation 21 comes down. It says God is with his people and the people are with their God. What's the first thing that is said when God is with his people finally and fully. He's going to go to you and he's going to wipe every tear from your eye. God is set not only to weep with you, but to eliminate the thing that causes your weeping because he's moved by the things that you're moved by. Things that are not lost on you are not lost on Jesus. The things that you feel, he feels. That's why Zach Eswine says this. In this fallen world, sadness is an act of sanity. In our tears, the testimony of the sane, all because Revelation 21 is coming. He's moved. Jesus has moved. And the story goes on in John 11 and also in John 12, because what we see is the second idea of malice. The sign and the miracle, it doesn't stay quiet. Actually, people are running to Jesus. He's this new celebrity. And when, when people run to Jesus, they're coming from somewhere. And the beautiful thing is they're coming from all over the place. But, but one place they're coming from is from the Pharisees. There were followers of the Pharisees that are now coming to follow Jesus. And it's important to note that actually they're coming because it was a real raising. Lazarus did raise. There's no potential for a hoax. The Jews will will not want to kill him for a thing that didn't happen. It actually happened. And because of that, the Jews will want to kill him because of the malice in their heart. And it says in verse 9 and on, When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came. Not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. In verse 19 it says So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that we're not gaining, that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And for the Pharisees, they knew the law. They were the law guys in the Jewish community. They knew the small ones of the 613. And they knew the big ones of the Ten Commandments. And because of the malice in their heart, they're going to break one of the biggest laws. Don't murder. Right In the words of the rhinestone cowboy, Glenn Campbell, there's been a load of compromising on the road to my horizon, and it's exactly what the case is for the Pharisees. Right? They're going to give up everything they hold to to eliminate the thing that compromises their prestige so they can continue to hold on to what they hold on to. And they're going to kill, want to kill Jesus and Lazarus not because they hate them. They're going to want to kill Jesus and kill Lazarus because they love themselves. They're losing the power and prestige because of Jesus, and their envy drives them to eliminate the threat. And C.S. Lewis says this way in in The Great Divorce, he says, we must picture hell as a state where everyone is perpetually concerned about his own dignity and advancement, where everyone has a grievance, and where everyone lives in the deadly, serious passions of envy and self-importance and resentment. It explains the scenario and the station for the Pharisees. They're only concerned about their own dignity and advancement, their own grievance, their own envy, self-importance, and resentment. They can't take their eyes off themselves because of their envy. And in fact, they can't get out of their own way and because of that, they're going to make sure Jesus and Lazarus gets out of their own way. And what's important for us, as we said at the beginning, if our story finds its fullness in the story of Scripture, we have to know that the malice that marks the Pharisees is a malice that's also in us. Because while while our, our object of malice may not be Jesus, it's important to know that their heart and ours are the same, and the ease of our hearts being threatened is oh so easy. It's oh so easy because our hearts are threatened and we're consumed by envy. Right, when someone makes you feel small, you want to make them feel smaller. When someone makes you lose, you want to make sure they lose. Envy and malice and jealousy is not possible. It's not just a possibility. It's actually in our pedigree. It's actually in your flesh and your bone and your blood. And here's what I mean. Early on in the story of the scripture in the Bible, um, we see Genesis 4. It's the first book of the Bible. And Genesis 4, we see exactly what happens when Adam and Eve leave the Garden of Eden. And after they leave the Garden of Eden, the first event to happen is murder. Because Adam and Eve have Cain and Abel, their sons, and Abel is the shepherd. And Cain is the farmer. And they both bring sacrifices to God. And they bring sacrifices. And Abel brought the first fruits, which is a spiritual word. It's It's a Bible word, which means he brought the best thing he had to God and said, Lord, this is for you. And Cain did not do that. And because of that, God looked at Abel's offering with favor. And because of that, that ensues anger in Cain. And it says in Verse 6 of Genesis 4, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you, not, if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let us go out into the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. The fourth chapter of the Bible Marked by murder due to envy. Later on in the Old Testament, there's a book of Esther. And the book of Esther is, uh, it never says the word God once. It's a godless story. How could God be involved in all these things that look so horrific? And in this quote unquote godless story, what we see is that uh, King Artaxerxes has this guy in his court, one of his buddies, Haman. And he says, hey, um, Haman, Parade into town, and everyone should bow down and give you honor. And so Haman's on this parade, going around town, everyone's bowing down, except for this one guy, Mordecai. And Mordecai's a Jew, and he will not bow down to Haman. And we see what happens. We see in Esther 3, in verse 5, it says, When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay honor to him, he was enraged. Yet, having learned who, Haman's, or who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. And then the rest of the book of, the, of Esther is Esther sacrificing herself and potentially dying for the sake of saving her people. Cain, Haman, the Pharisees, all have an envious malice that desires for blood to be shed. And so for you, where in your life, when in your life, does that blood in in your veins pump full of envy that cries out for blood to be shed for another? When you feel most threatened. When you lose. When you feel small. For these Pharisees, they're going to get exactly what they want. Jesus will die, and it will be because of them. And yet, the scheming evil plan on a Sunday of Palm Sunday does not outweigh on a scale the joy in the life that will come seven days later. And because of that, we have to attend to what's happening even as they're scheming with evil and malice in their heart. And it's this last idea, the majesty. Because we see the one who the story is about, Jesus. We see, again, the movement of Jesus at the tomb. We see the malice of the Pharisees against Jesus. And those are important because it sets the frame for the majesty of Jesus rolling into town and them dubbing him king. Because it shows what kind of king he is. And it's a king who has come to die. Because he's a God who says, Lazarus, come out of the grave and I will go into the grave. He says, I know what you're planning against me, Pharisees, and guess what? I'm going to let you seemingly win. And yet this triumphal entry is exactly like the words of the Christmas song, a thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. These people are weary, and there is a thrill of hope. And because of that, they see Jesus, this miracle worker, this sign worker who's healed and and, and raised Lazarus, come into town, and they're dubbing him king. They say, king of Israel. Jesus, you're the king of Israel. And they say this, they say, Hosanna. Hosanna, which means save us. It's directly from Psalm 118. Jesus, save us from the occupying Roman government and rule over them with a sword, with power and victory. They say, Hosanna. They, they also have these palm branches. These palm branches are there, and it's this uh, modern-day confetti, pretty much. This parade that's happening. Also in Psalm 118, as they're giving them glory. And that's the scene. That's that's what's set. The words and the and the, and the visual of Hosanna and palm branches. And the camera turns to the man of the hour. And then you hear a record scratch. Because this carpenter from Nazareth comes in on a little donkey. Not on a war horse. Not on a chariot. Not with a crown on his head. But he comes in on a donkey all to fulfill what Zechariah 9.9 says, that the kind of king they need is not a war horse, and it's not a chariot. It's a lowly king, yet victorious. And Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious and lowly, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so we have to point out what is majestic about that. There's noise and celebration. Save us. You're the king of Israel, Jesus. And we have these palm branches for you. We're laying cloaks down for you. Where is their majesty in the guy riding on a donkey? Not a war horse, not a chariot. It's because everything that happens in Holy Week will be modeled by that very note. Great expectation met with a humble reality and a sacri- sacrificial reality. And he doesn't come to let us down. All right, we have this great excitement about, you're coming, Jesus, you're a king. You're going to do it for us. You're going to lay your life down, and, and you're, gonna, you're actually going to help us win. And he doesn't come to let us down. Instead, he comes to lay himself down. And in that, we see the kind of king he is. He doesn't have this majesty through acclaim and through power, but through loss and through suffering. And he does all of that, all throughout Holy Week, all on a Friday, all in the darkness of a tomb until Sunday. Because of you. Because of his sheep. And just like he said to Lazarus, Lazarus, come out. When he speaks, his sheep hear his voice and follow him. And because of that, we follow him out of his tomb. And he goes into that tomb that Lazarus just came out of for his people. He does it for Lazarus. He does it for for a a truth-needing Mary and Martha, the weeping Mary. Uh, for his disciples who are right now on the Palm Sunday saying, yeah, you are, you're, you're doing it, Jesus. We're, we're on the rise. We're getting there. And then in four days, they'll leave. He does it for people like little ones, the people in that room, and for Evelyn Dickenhouse, and for William Kinney, and for Hallie Scruggs. He does it for old ones, Like Catherine Kuntz, Cynthia Peake, and Mike Hill. He does it for the ones that have gone before us and already, like the four days of Lazarus in the tomb who have already died, he does it for them. And your Jesus does it for you. The crown of thorns that is marking his majesty is that he's a man of sorrows and he doesn't come with power, but instead he comes to lose so that you will win. So that when you look at Holy Week, every movement of Jesus, you should see I'm involved there. He's washing my feet, making himself low. He's being struck because actually I don't have to be struck. He's, he's drinking the bitterness of the cup of wrath, so I don't have to. All because he wants you and Sunday is coming, my friends. the empty tomb is coming. He is a God who has come to lay his life down for his sheep and his sheep follows his voice. let's pray. See you this very day, people in our old feed store on the south side of Chattanooga. Your king has come to you, righteous, victorious, lowly, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is not the way we would have written the story, Jesus. And yet this is the way you accomplished a story for us. A story marked with glory and redemption and hope and power even. So this very day, Lord, would you uh, meet us and be moved by the things that mark our life because, Jesus, we long to be just like Lazarus. And have your word speak over us. Speak life into us. Only to feel the freedom of you unbinding the grave cloths that bind us now. We pray it all, Jesus, because you are the one that walked out of the grave. And we follow you in your wake. We pray in your name. Amen. Unbinding the grave cloths that bind us now. We pray it all, Jesus, because you are the one that walked out of the grave. And we follow you in your wake. We pray in your name. Amen.